Welcome to Beers, Business, and Balls, presented by House Enterprise. Join Will Tondo and Jake Zimmer every week as we dive into interviews with leaders in the craft beer, business news, and sports entertainment world. This podcast wouldn't be here without Spotify. Get to know Spotify for podcasters, the free all-in-one podcast platform for every creator. This tool allows you to publish shows to all major platforms and helps turn your passions into careers. To find out more, head over to podcasters.spotify.com. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at DraftKings. Get in on the action with DraftKings Sportsbook. New customers can make a $5 bet and score $150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and sign up with the code BBB for all wager incentives. That's code BBB only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Hope is here. Call 1-800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org if you have any issues. Play it smart from the start with GameSense. Now, here's our episode of Beers, Business, and Balls. World Series champion, no better time than right after the World Series. Uh, former MLB player and Olympian Ryan LaVarnway comes to the podcast. We've been going back and forth for weeks. Uh, baseball season's over, so we're ready to still talk baseball as any baseball fan would uh, because it is a 365-day sport. But Ryan, welcome to the podcast, and uh, how's everything going? Thanks for having me, boys. I'm glad we finally found time to do this. So I know we're excited. I mean, it is true. Like, Baseball, you know, it's a long-ass season, but there's always something to talk about, whether it's past, present, or future. So we're all talking all things Ryan LaVarnway today, and we're going to talk about your early beginnings, of course. And what was it about baseball that gave you that bug? And, you know, when you were growing up, why was, you know, baseball the only sport you played? I started baseball because my kindergarten teacher told my parents I was bad at sharing. And that I needed to get involved in a team sport. So my, my dad had played. Uh, he was a triple varsity athlete in high school, baseball, basketball, football, in small town, Indiana. Uh, but at the time, he was still playing pickup softball. So it was kind of natural. He brought me out to the field, and I, I took to it right away. So Veritech was your idol growing up. Like he was, he was a guy that you looked up to. Um, was there something specific about his game that you emulated and, and tried to sort of build into your game growing up? So, so growing up, I, I was, I grew up in LA. So as a catcher, it was like Mike Piazza. He's the guy and he was a hitter. Um, but then as I got a little older and I went to school in the Northeast, like Veritek is the guy. Right. And it wasn't even so much his game that I wanted to emulate, but I wanted to be Jason Veritek. Because he was reliable. He was like the definition of a man. Like like some people a generation above me looked at Tom Selleck like this. Right? Like he's what a man looks like. That's that's how I looked at Jason Veritek. Like that's what a, a man looks like. That's what a leader looks like. That's what a catcher is supposed to do. Uh, and I just wanted to really just be exactly like him. Was there any moment growing up that, you know, can you point to like 2004 or 2007 or something like that, that you said like, oh, that was a moment or something he did or something he said that made you sort of say like, that's what a man looks like. That's what a leader looks like. Any of those stick out? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say there was any like event or, or particular moment. It was just the way he handled his business and the way he garnered respect uh, and the way he just led by his actions. Like he wasn't a loud in your face leader. He was he was the captain, and you just respected him, and he went about his business the right way. And as you moved on, you obviously attended Yale University. My first question before we get into the baseball stuff: you got eleven credits left, right? I got yeah, like five and a half classes or six, whatever it is. When's it on the bucket list? What's the pecking order? Is it oh. is it a soon <laughs> thing? Is it a you know I'll get to it kind of thing? I got to tell you, they're not making it easy on me. <laughs> oh man like at a certain point i'm like can you just give me an honorary degree they're like yeah. no shot you're not that cool <laughs> um, when i when i left in 2008 they said your graduation requirements will always stay the same no matter what how the school changes so that part is cool like yale's been here for 300 years we're not going anywhere um 
this was also before University of Phoenix made online a viable option. Right. So, for, for the first decade of my career, there was no no option. In the last few years, they've started Yale online only for the summer session. And you're only allowed to take four classes total towards graduation credit. So I've taken four classes during the summer. Uh, during my call up to the Reds, I was taking a class. Uh, during my call up to the to the Indians and to the Marlins, I, I was in Yale classes in the morning and then playing big league baseball at night. Um, but that last semester, I'm going to have to go back on campus. And I don't know, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like, I mean, on one end, humble brag that you get an Ivy league degree. So that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> but on the other end, it's like, yeah, having to go back like to finish classes. Uh, well, and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing that's great about the world today. Most people don't do their research and the way that you led with, so you've got 11 credits left. Most people lead with Yale graduate, Ryan LaVarne. <laughs> get the credit. Well, you, you attended Yale. You're an Ivy league player. Um, but when you went there, so you started with uh, right field as your position, but then you moved to catcher. What was the prompt that made you to switch? Was it a natural decision? Was it, like you said, you you looked up to certain guys and that was more comfortable style? Or was there just an opportunity that you took? Yeah, so catcher was my primary position growing up from the time I was seven years old. I was the only seven-year-old that wasn't afraid to do it. So they put me back there and I, and I took to it. Uh, when I got to high school, I was one of the smallest people in the whole program. Because I grew late. I was young for my grade. And you know how it is. Like some kids hit puberty about 13 years before other people. So when I went into high school, I'm like five foot four, 130 pounds. Uh, and I wouldn't have put me behind the plate versus the other kid in my grade either. His name was Sammy Donabedian. And he was just better. He just was. Like I'll fully admit it. So in order to get in the lineup, they moved me to the outfield because my I hit. That was always my, my biggest tool. And my dad had always told me growing up, even if you're the second best player in the whole world, if the first best player plays your position and you want to get on the field, you better be able to play somewhere else. So I, I did not catch one game on the varsity in high school. I played left field. I got recruited to college to play outfield. And then it was my freshman year winter break. Uh, we were at a holiday party with my eight-year-old all-star team coach. And he said, when are you going to stop messing around with this outfield thing? Like, you're way too slow to play outfield professionally. You're the slowest guy on every field you've ever played on. Like, if you want to go pro, you got to catch. So I went back to school and I told Coach Stuper, like, hey, I want to catch. And the rest is history. And that's a, another good point, too. I mean, you got to play with John Stuper, who's one of the winningest coaches at really anything in Connecticut as well. I mean, the guy bled excellence. What – how what role did he take in developing you getting you ready for the big leagues and allowing you to rack up the accolades that you did there uh stoop was good stoop was really good about um giving you the the mental aspect of what it takes to be a player like um what it's going to be like what you can expect that mindset uh, but really it was our volunteer assistant hitting coach at Yale that had the biggest impact on me uh, this guy saw the world different than most people he was the guy that like all the sayings that transcend baseball and go into everyday life. He's like, that's not true. Right. Like keep your eye on the ball. He's like, yeah, but if it's coming hundred miles per hour, you can't see it anyway. Or like, ah, oh, that was totally out of left field. It's like left field is in the field of play. Why is that weird? Right. So this guy, and I'll never forget this moment when I do my, my motivational speaking, I always tell this story because it was, had such a big impact on me. After my freshman year of college, I saw our first baseman. His name is Mark Sawyer. He was awarded all Ivy League first baseman. And I thought to myself, dang, that, that's a cool award. I didn't know they did that. I want to win that too because I want to be, I want to be the best. And, and Coach Glenn, Coach Glenn Lungarini is his name. He, again, he was a volunteer assistant hitting coach. He didn't get paid to be there. He was there because he loved it. And he looked at me and he's like, why would you stop at all Ivy League? Like, why not more? You should be All-American. And it was like, duh. Like, why was I not thinking that big? I never even considered that option. But when he said that to me, like, you know, when you have a really, really big goal that feels outrageous, like all good ideas feel outrageous at first. And then you, you rise to the occasion. I started doing more than I had ever done 
so that I could be more than I had ever been. And like I was watching cartoons and I saw Dragon Ball Z, the TV show, right? The cartoon, you know, the show. Yeah. They like train with weighted clothing. And then the big fight comes on. They're like, let me take off my weighted clothing. (laughs) I bought a weight vest and wore it under my shirt every minute I was awake for two months. Like, what does that have to do with baseball? Maybe nothing. Or maybe when I bent over to pick up my backpack, like I got an extra rep in. Maybe when I got the food at the dining hall and I put my my tray away, I got an extra rep in. And I'll tell you, when I took off the weight vest, when the season started, I felt like I had built up all of this proof. Like I proved it to myself that like I earned this. Now, now the play is, is a foregone conclusion. Like I worked so much harder than I know any sane person would ever work. I earned it. So before that mindset change, was the major leagues always the goal or was it just let me play college ball and then focus on something else? Or if I get a chance, great, but it might not be in my cards. Or was that always just I'm going to the majors? Yeah, when I was five years old, I decided I was going to play in the big leagues. And then and then that Will Smith song uh, came out. Will Smith was my favorite rapper growing up. <laughs> or, you know, He never cursed and I loved that about him. Um, no plan B, it distracts from plan A was one of his lyrics that like lived in my head rent free. Even, uh, even my, my college roommate who he's, he's a very serious, like he's climbing the ranks in the political sphere right now. Uh, his parents were also very serious people. They were like, what do you want to do when you graduate? I was like, I'm going to play baseball. They're like, (laughs) no, seriously, what are you going to do? I was like, I'm going to play baseball. There is no other plan. Um, the problem was that until my sophomore year of college, there wasn't a lot of evidence to back up that I was on this track, right? I didn't, I didn't play varsity until my senior year in high school and I couldn't even play my own position at that point. And then for even freshman year in college, I was at a school that had produced more U S presidents than big league hitters. We were ranked 270th out of 271 division one teams. So there was this like dichotomy in my head of like, I know I already decided I'm going to be a big leaguer and like how. So when deciding schools was Yale just a good fit all around? Like what was the decision to get you there rather than somewhere else? It's honestly my best option for baseball and school. So it was kind of a no brainer. Uh, And I thought it was, you know, I thought I was, I was jazzed up because it's Yale, right? Uh, but I can't tell you how many times I've had to ask, answer, how many times I've had to answer the question, why the hell did you go to Yale? It's more of like a why not? I mean, it's one of the really? obvious. <laughs> it's, it's, it's normally prefaced with a like, well, if you wanted to play baseball, then why the hell did you go to Yale? Fair enough. But I'm like, it's still like Yale. <laughs> yeah. And we yeah, everybody can get that degree hung up in the wall in a couple of years. It's going to be really Yale. I have, yeah. have seven eighths of a degree behind me. <laughs> I love it. Well, I mean, something paid off, right? Because you win the NCAA batting title in 2007, hit like a ridiculous 467 or something like that. Uh, played another year at Yale, and then the Red Sox drafted you in 2008 in the sixth round. Um, so you obviously looked up to Veritech, but was that – were you like a Sox guy, and was that sort of like a, a dream come true for you, or was that just sort of, hey, I get to you know maybe have this really cool path, or were you sort of just indifferent throughout the process? Tell us about the day you got the call. Yeah, so I grew up a Dodger fan in L.A. Uh, and then when I went to school, my best friend, you know, we were best friends pretty quick at Yale. He's diehard Red Sox. Diehard, like grew up in in Mass, uh, lives and breathes it, had jerseys all over the place. We went to Red Sox games because it was only a two-hour drive up the road from Yale. Uh, so I thought it was pretty cool. But when you're looking at getting drafted and, you know, I had won the, the batting title, I was talking to 26 of the different teams. It was, it was who's gonna who's gonna pick me first. You don't get it. You don't get to choose who drafts you. Um, so it was pretty cool when they drafted me. Uh, and then I called back the next day to to get some follow up details. And they had won the World Series in 07. So they answer the phone. World Series champion Boston Red Sox. How can I help you? I was like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> so was that like one of like the first pinch me moments for you? I guess. I mean. I remember, I remember that phone call. I remember how they answered the phone. I remembered uh, when they called me to tell me they draft me. 
Theo Epstein was like, hey, is that the Yale kid? Let me talk to him. <laughs> so that was cool. Um, and then I remember when I showed up to spring training the next year and saw how many players they had in the organization, I remember feeling really intimidated. I was like, I got drafted. I'm pro, but I have to beat out all these guys now too. And that's one of the things that, you know, obviously incredible moment and you made the big leagues and won a world series. But before that, I mean, what was the hardest part about the minor leagues and spring trainings that doesn't get enough attention that people should understand, I guess, like the psychology of what goes on in a a day-to-day minor leaguer? The hardest part. um, And this might be, um, you know, I'm, I'm out from it now. It's been a 12 years since I made that first debut. Uh, but thinking back now, what the hardest part was when you feel out of control. Because um, similar to when I made making all American my goal and like started doing these crazy things, like wearing I'm wearing that weight vest right now, by the way, because I I've been given my motivational speech and I was like I gotta walk the walk, so I got it on. Um, but I ended up seeing somebody get named Red Sox Minor League Player of the Year, and I made that my goal. And then I won Red Sox minor league player of the year three years in a row. Right? Like you set a goal, you you do everything you can, you make it come true. But being Red Sox minor league player of the year three years in a row, at a certain point, you're like, what else do I got to do? Right? Like I've done my part, but realistically ahead of me is David Ortiz and Jason Veritek. So it doesn't matter what I do. Um, and I think I did a pretty good job at the time um being like well i gotta win it again i gotta just keep going um but there were times there were times when you know everybody has weaknesses everybody has slumps mentally physically when the the catching coordinator or the hitting coordinator would come into town and they'd be like hey how you doing like keep keep it up Uh, and i'd say like what do i gotta do and the only thing that they could say to me was keep doing what you're doing keep doing what you're doing And, and that i remember was hard to hear Cause I'm the type of person that loves constructive feedback. Like, no, give me something to work on because if I have something to work on, I, I know myself, I'm going to work on it. I'm going to overcome. I'll set a new goal. Um, but the like, keep doing what you're doing. You're doing everything right. Well, that was hard for me. Yeah. Because it's like, essentially you're just, you, and I hate to say it, but you're waiting for an injury. It's like you could be the best, yeah. you know, best minor league ever, but there's, if there's no room up top, you're either, someone's got to get traded. Someone's got to get injured or, the teams in the basement and we're just bringing up the kids. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's such a part of it. And I learned this along the years. I ended up getting called up and either sent down, traded or released 26 times over the course of my career. And I learned very much about being a cog in the business of baseball, which is so unique to the major league and professional level versus high school, college, youth ball, where like you're on the team or you're not. You're like, you're a valuable member of this team. We need you. You're with us for the year or like day to day, you go up and down. It's, it's very different. So, and then to make things more interesting, I mean, you've got guys like Salta, Salta Lamakia and, and Veritech still on the roster in 2011 when you come up um, in the first three years with the Sox, you've got three managers, right? You've got Tito, you've got uh, Bobby Valentine, who was uh, one of our first guests on the show, actually way back in the day. Um, and then John Farrell comes in, right? So, I mean, how was that adjustment trying to figure out all those guys? I'm not going to get into, you know, the saga that was Bobby V that one year, but, um, you know, that, that must have been a wrinkle in trying to adjust to the big leagues too, like getting to know the style of each of those three guys. I don't like to, I don't like to sit and, and think what if, because I'm, I'm very proud of what I was able to accomplish in baseball and my, my up and down journeyman story has shaped me into the into the man I am today but I think my career is a very different story if Francona and Theo Epstein aren't run out of town my first year if the if the guy that drafted me and the manager that first called me up somebody that believes in me gives me a chance like it's probably a very different story for me right now and I feel like you know that's something that's very apparent in college especially because it's a, it's a more of a recruiting process where it's like the new regime comes in, they bring their guys, but I don't think it's necessarily like talked about much in the professional level where it's like, you know, the people that drafted you, if they're out, 
you know, you have people that are like, well, we're going to draft the people we know, and we're going to want the people that fit in our scheme. Um, it's kind of just overlooked on the whole business side of things. Well, there's, there's also something to be said for somebody that believes in you, somebody right. that's seen you be successful for years versus if someone new comes in and you have a make a bad first impression or you have a, a slump at the wrong time, they haven't maybe seen you be successful as much as the people that believe in you. And you talk about like the that side of baseball. How do you think in now the present day? And I know you're not, you know, playing in the majors right now, but it's like the whole analytic movement and how it's like we're all focused on like the numbers inside of that. Do you feel like there's a lot of overshadow on the hard work and the people like watching you every day rather than just seeing what's printed out on a spreadsheet? I think the better organizations use both. Uh, I think that every bit of analytics and research and development and all the new improvements to the game are are exactly that they're improvements they're making the game better but i think in every revolution it always goes a little too far and then you got to pull it back and find the balance so i think the good teams are starting to find that balance of okay we have all these numbers we have way more information than we could ever productively use what is the most useful and then how do we use that in conjunction with what we're seeing and what we know about the game. So, yeah, that's a really good point. I think there's every, the, the big advice has been, you know, the, the best front offices and the best coaching staffs know how to use a little bit of both. Like kind of just, you can't rely on pure intuition. You can't be buried in an Excel spreadsheet, but you, you know, you use both, uh, which I think is super interesting. Um, I want to shift gears back to 2013 as well. So, you guys win the World Series. Uh, you're playing with David Ortiz and, and you know, all these other guys that, you know, might have their <laughs> numbers retired by Boston at some day, maybe Dustin Pedroia. Uh, you know, what I, I guess for you was that that has to be the highlight of your career at this point. Um, I mean, what what were some of those fondest memories that you have from that year? You know, was there was there this motion in the dugout of like, Hey, it's, you know, this is our world series to lose. No one can stop us or, or walk us through that journey. Uh, so I always think back to the first day of spring training when I walked in and I met Johnny Gomes for the first time, he was a new addition to the team, not a hall of fame player, but if they had a hall of fame for a teammate or for a clubhouse leader, first ballot. And I remember I was a little intimidated by him. He's got this look to him, right? And I walk up and I introduce myself and maybe a little sheepishly say, hey, nice to meet you. I'm Ryan. How you doing? And he said, I'm great. I'm one day closer to the World Series Parade. <laughs> and my it's eyes got this yeah. big because I'm like, oh, we don't talk. In my head, I'm, I'm thinking, we don't talk about that. We're going to jinx it, right? I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious like every baseball player. And, and He's like, no, if, how are we going to make it come true? We don't talk about it all the time. Another guy that was new that year was, was Ryan Dempster. And they were they talked about it all the time because we had no expectations on our team. The year before was the Bobby Valentine, I think you called it a saga. It's <laughs> your word so that I don't get in trouble. That's fine, um, yes. The year before, we lost 97 games. Yeah. And it, we were, it was the worst season in decades. And here we are walking in basically the same core group talking about winning the world series. Like where did that come from? And it comes true. Right. And to that point, like um, to, to interject real quick, was it more of the players in your eyes or was, did, did John Farrell have a role in sort of cultivating that for you all? It's like, Hey, I'm the new guy in town. I've won a few games, haven't won anything crazy, but was it just like, Hey, you guys figure this out. I'm going to put Johnny Gomes and Ortiz and be sort of the rah, rah guys and gas you up for this or did he have any role in that too? I I don't know the answer to that. I, yeah. I can't tell you because I was so young still and so green in the game that I was trying to stay above water with these guys, right? We had David Ross, Salt of the Machia. I mean, the names on this on this roster are ridiculous. Uh, Lackey, Lester, Stephen Drew. Um, it, you could go on and on. Uh, but – to me, it was the player leadership. I, I can't remember the initial team meeting where John Farrell uh, introduced himself and set the tone. Um, later in my career, I started paying more attention because Terry Francona told me, he's like, you should manage when you're done. And 
AJ Hinge told me you should manage when you're done. So I started paying attention to these things and how they set the tone. Uh, but in 2013, you know, I want to give John Farrell credit because even if there's player leadership, I've seen a manager screw it up and he didn't for sure. But I, I honestly don't remember how he set the tone. What I remember is that player leadership was, t- was telling the Fenway crew, uh, Fenway Park grounds crew with the manual scoreboard, like, don't hang Boston Red Sox in the first place slot. Like, paint our name on the wall because no one's coming for us. There's a whole a whole mentality behind it. And, um, I mean, that was, you know, a highlight. I see another thing as a, a cool opportunity for you as well was being able to play for Team Israel, not only in the World Baseball Classic, but also, well, twice, but also the Summer Olympics. Um, you know, are those experiences that you never really expected as well? Like, once you got to the big leagues, you're like, that what next feeling? Or is it something that, in your mind, too, was an opportunity you couldn't pass up? Uh, so I got recruited for Team Israel first in 2012 when they were trying to qualify for the tournament because Israel was ranked 42nd in the world at the time. And the World Baseball Classic is a top 16 team. So you had, they had to play their way into one of the open slots. Um, but the qualifying tournament happens during September when if you're in the big leagues, you're busy. So 2012, I wasn't available. 2016, I, I told them basically, like, I'll play if I'm if I'm available, but I don't expect to be. And then... 2016 was the only year out of 11 years that I had big league service time where I wasn't in the big leagues in September. So it kind of worked out with call it fate, call it whatever. Um, and it turned out to be just an incredible, incredible experience. It helped me find myself um, and fall back in love with the game. Cause I told you I've been, I was called up, sent down so many times. International baseball is pure. Nobody's getting sent up or sent down. Nobody's worried about a contract or an endorsement deal like you have to win today with who we've got wearing the same uniform and it it takes you back to little league where like how else can you replicate that win or go home feeling um it just felt so pure to have 26 guys pulling on the same rope in the same direction and this year as well i i was doing some research i don't think you've ever played with ian kinsler but he managed the team this this time around um what was, what was that like? I mean, that's got to be so cool for him. Everybody's lauded him as this leader in the clubhouse and whatnot, and now he gets to throw on the Israel jersey and actually, you know, manage this team. Um, you know, what what's different about him as the player uh, than the leader? Um, so, I first of all, I appreciate you doing your research. I did actually play with him in the Olympics. You did? In the Olympics. Oh, well, the Olympics, yes. That's, that's right. That's outside-the-box research item. I pigeonhole my, myself to MLB stats, so that's what I get. In the, in, uh, you're right. In Major League Baseball, I never got the chance. Uh, so I think I can answer your question better because I did play f- with him. Yeah. In, uh, with him in the Olympics. The first, the first thing I noticed is that he's one of the guys. Right? Like, he's a Texas Rangers Hall of Famer. You got to have the conversation. Is he a baseball Hall of Famer? Like, I think he'll get votes. Um, if not, get gets in. I think I'd love to see him in. Um, but on Team Israel, where you've got guys that have been retired for six years, guys that played in college, guys that never played in college, guys that are indie ball guys, guys like me that have been up and down a bunch. Um, and he, he's one of the guys. Like, you respect that he indoctrinated himself in the group. And then on top of that, um, willing to have a conversation, willing to talk, um, and then set the expectations high. Similar to that Red Sox team, I think what great leaders do is they give you a vision for success and something to rally against. Like whether it's expectations, whether it's a rival team, uh, whether it's the team you're playing that day, I think um, when you're defiant or when you're rebellious or when you're saying, why not us? that's that's when you have you know really that something to hold on to that collective chip on your shoulder and that's what he was able to do his dorm in olympic village he called the lion's den because you don't you don't come in there if you're a sheep um and that's still that's still what he calls his fantasy football team in our in our fantasy league so (laughs) that was cool uh playing with him and then playing for him we had conversations again because i i've thought about maybe getting into managing at some point uh, and he said, and I remember him talking about how it's so much more than just what happens on the field. You have to deal with media. You have to deal with building the team. You have to deal with 
the logistics of the tournament, setting setting meetings, scouting meetings. Um, I feel like because the WBC is such a quick tournament and it's such an organizational mess where you have to move in and out of the locker room before every game, all four teams are at the same hotel. You have to find a conference room to have meetings. Um, I'd like to play for him for longer to get to know how that leadership really gets to play. What are your thoughts on like the world baseball classic um, in terms of, you know, obviously we had that unfortunate injury with uh, Edwin Diaz. Do you think that's going to scare players in the future or more after the backlash of everything where people are like, you know, the MLB fans are like, this is dumb. I'm just losing players and blah, 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 blah. Are players more inspired to be like, we're representing our country and, and wanting to, you know, play in their respective fields. I hope I hope it doesn't dissuade anyone because the World Baseball Classic was the was the highlight of my career both times. Like it it really rivals it really rivals MLB playoffs and World Series. And I and I played for a WBC team that got sixth place in our best round and what eleventh place in the in the other round. Like it rivals that type of excitement, that type of intensity. The crowd noise is insane. Um, and playing, playing for something more than yourself and more than a contract really, really is meaningful. And I think at the, I mean, look how good the end to the world baseball classic this year was, you know, you have, uh, one of the highest rated baseball games, uh, ever to my knowledge, right. Where you've got, it's the classic Otani trout. That'll probably be, uh, well, many thought at the time it was going to be the only time they'd be able to face each other. Who knows how that'll shape up now, but, um, you know, you had the whole world tuned in to, you know, the last, the, the ninth inning. I remember being on the edge of my seat, and I haven't felt like that about a baseball game in a, in a long time, if I'm being perfectly honest. I was, I was like, yelping as, as Trout <laughs> swung, and I couldn't tell if he was going to hit it. I was like, oh! <laughs> were true. you there? But like, I, did, you get, did you get to watch that in person? No, by that point, I was already home. You were home, back home, home on yeah. the couch, jumping off the side of the couch. Yeah, I That's mean, incredible. It's wild. So um, to that point, I, I would, I wonder, uh, love to hear from you, Ryan, what your favorite stadium environments have been too. Like, you know, has there been a crowd that stuck out? Obviously I'm sure Fenway has to have a, a warm place in your heart, but anywhere else that you've walked into, maybe it's WBC, maybe it's a college environment, but just some of your favorite places to play over the years. Oh, there's so many, there's so many great fan bases and stadiums that I want to acknowledge. Give me, give me a minute to give them their, their due. Right. So Fenway Park during the during the playoffs, um, there's one obviously the David Ortiz Grand Slam uh, in the ALCS against the Tigers was insane. Um, in the World Series when Shane Victorino came to the plate and and the Two Little Birds song played and they and they turned the song off and the fans carried it a whole nother verse, insane, insane. Um, Fenway just popped up the other day. Uh, he cleared the bases off that too. I think he hit a, a three run triple after that. Uh, no, he had a four run homer. It was a homer, uh, four run homer, four run homer, <laughs> otherwise known as a grand slam. <laughs> um, if, if any of my teammates from that team see this, they'll know what I mean. <laughs> um, no, that so Fenway league of its own, obviously, uh, Wrigley also field of its own, uh, league of its own. The last game that I ever played in the big leagues, and I, I had an idea it might be the last game. I was I was with the Cleveland Indians before they changed their name, um, and we were getting our butts kicked. We were just we were losing, and it was homer after homer. We couldn't stop the the Cubs offense that day. And when the Cubs hit a homer, do you, have you been to Wrigley Field enough to know the answer to this question? What song do they play? Oh God! It's been seven years since I've been to Wrigley. Uh, the Cubs guy, Jake. Come on! I know. I this know. This is how we do it. Yes, that's right. Yes. yes. So it was a sold-out crowd, Wrigley Field night game, which doesn't happen very often, and everyone in the stadium is dancing. They're they're jigging. You see from far away the whole. It's like a wave, and I and I, even though we were getting our bus kicked, I'm a competitive dude. I was like, this might be my last game in the big leagues. I got to enjoy this. Like, this is cool. Even though I'm on the wrong side of it, like 40,000 people having a good time at a baseball game is just something to behold. So Wrigley is amazing. Um, Miami during the World Baseball Classic with the fans, the Puerto Rico game, the Venezuela game. Oh, my God. With the 
the trumpets and the drum line and everybody freaking out insane uh seoul south korea against korea same thing the cheerleaders on the dugout insane um I'm not I'm not giving everyone their credit, but just so I love I love the fan bases and I especially love when the fan bases are hometown friendly. Because I mean I ended up playing for half the league at, at the end, but when I was with the Red Sox, we'd go everywhere, we'd have Red Sox fans. Red Sox yeah. fans travel great. But I almost liked it more when they would boo us. Like playing in Yankee Stadium, fifty five thousand people booing you. And then you're doing something good, and the sound of silence from 55,000 people. Oh my God. So powerful. And on the flip side, as we talk about, you know, the rest of your career, you got to see a lot of minor league stadiums as well, which I think uh, the Rangers just announced that they're releasing like a $75 million project for their new team in uh, South Carolina, which is just crazy. Um, you play for the Paw Sox. We miss McCoy Stadium. How was that experience <laughs> uh, in Pawtucket? Paw Sox. Other other than the fact that I felt like I was gonna die every time I fouled off <laughs> the dugout, Paw Sox were amazing. And they had a, I had a windscreen up on the wall. Like I I played great for that team. I made two All Star teams, two championships for that team. I love Pawtucket. Yeah. That's where my wife and I started living together. I have so many great memories. Pawtucket, Rumford, Rhode Island, all all over there. What were your favorite spots around that area too? You must have had some stuff to do over there. Oh, I mean, Seven Stars Bakery. My my wife oh, worked yeah. there, so I was there every day. Uh, and then uh, she she also worked next door, uh, Avenue N. Yep. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You're, you're speaking our language right now. Yeah. This is incredible. <laughs> we're, we're huge foodies, and, and she worked at half of these places. So, yeah, we're, we're all in. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a disappointing one when that team left because, uh, I mean, between the fireworks shows and just – family fun affordable and and being so close it was uh i mean no no discredit to worcester they've done a, a beautiful job on that stadium but they should have losing out on that will be one of rhode island's many blunders i would say i did i i missed the uh the six dollar tickets yeah the six dollar tickets and the, like the three dollar hot dogs and seeing the gray on people's beards you know whereas <laughs> you know in the fenway you're you're spending 250 bucks for that you know yeah. or any other park but that's neither here nor there <laughs> um uh we'll move on to the game itself ryan so you started playing the pros in 2008 you formally announced your retirement uh in march of 2023 so congrats uh we're now you're now uh, eight months in to the official retirement here. But, um, I mean, how did you see this game evolve? I think we've asked some former athletes, like, hey, what's the state of the game now versus, you know, where it is when you started playing. But I, I feel like you have a really unique perspective having seen a lot of different ways uh, that this game has evolved. So, yeah. I don't know. We'd love your thoughts there. Well, the catcher position in itself evolved twice during my career. When I, when I first came up, the most important thing you did was throw people out. And then the second most important thing you did was keep the ball in front of you. And then if you received the ball, you just had to pass the eye test because there was no way to judge it. And then the K zone and stat cast came along and umpire metrics came along and then it flipped it on its head. Number one thing you have to do is you have to steal strikes because now we can measure it. Um, number two thing, keep the ball in front of you. And they decided stealing bases isn't important. So nobody was stealing. So that became the least important thing, like totally inverted. Um, you can now catch on a knee versus catch from a squat. Uh, just to, the position was totally revolutionized. Uh, and I was probably a late adapter to the, the new stuff. I think maybe, again, I don't, I don't sit and wonder what if, but I think if I had gotten on that train sooner, it might be a different story. Uh, and then as far as the, hitting the long ball versus contact and average, I still think about, like, I always wanted to be a 300 hitter. That was always my goal. Triple A big leagues. Um, I think my best year in the big leagues, I was 299 in 2013. It was over 300 before the last game. I blew it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I always tried to hit for average and just naturally had power. When I, when I hit homers, it was just a happy accident. And now it seems like not only is the pitching way better than when I first came up, pitching is insane how good it is, um, but hitters are also have a different approach at the plate. 
did you have any overlap um, in March with the pitch com? Like, were you just starting to, or like use was, it? Or what was it? I was with the Tigers in Major League Spring Training in 2022, and they were one of four teams that were designated to try it in spring training voluntarily. And as a team, we said, no, that's not going to be a thing. We're not trying that. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, that's like a whole new element too. It's yeah. more than just, you know, throwing signs and, and doing that. But do you think in how the catcher position is now, will we ever see another guy like a, a Yadier Molina in the league? I hope so. Yadier was not only one of the best catchers in the, of our generation – um, but you saw how much he meant to that team when he retired. Yeah. Right? They have the same team, minus him, and they went from 10 playoff appearances in a row to the worst season in, in 100 years. So it, it, what, he did, what he brought to the table was so much more than what he did physically on the field. He was another coach. Um, and that's what the catcher position has the opportunity to do is – just like Jason Veritek, be a leader, be a captain, be almost another coach that gets to play the game as a peer with these guys. And as we talk about how the game's growing, you have a, a new chair to sit in uh, to, to, to watch these games, right? So analysts for uh, the Rockies now on AT&T Sportsnet. Um, now that you are sort of, uh, you know, calling games, you're in the studio, that kind of stuff. How does the game change for you now that you're able to like fully sit back almost and sort of be, you know, maybe more critical, but also maybe more, you know, giving praise to guys who deserve it. Like how does, how does you looking at the game change now that you're in that sort of analyst role? The number one priority for me is to remember how hard it is. So I want to, you know, I, Stephen A. Smith has made a whole career on ESPN out of being controversial and in your face and, and challenging guys that's not the approach that I want to take. And if I'm not nearly as famous or get paid as much as Stephen A. Smith, that's fine. I want to be a, uh, a person that, that shows people the, what is this guy doing that's so amazing and why is that so hard and why is it so impressive that he's doing that? That's my approach. Um, and with the Rockies this year having their worst season in 30 years, had to be a little creative, right? Like you want to, <laughs> you want to be honest with the audience. You can't, you can't say things are sunshine and rainbows when you're having the worst season in 30 years. But you can find, like, where is the potential positive? Who are the rookies that might be the future? What What is the opportunity that this team could be taking advantage of? Um, and, and that's kind of how I view the world anyway, right, is is what's the positive that we can find in, in this bad situation? So it's all about being authentic. If I go out there and try to be fake, um, it won't be received well. So I, I want to be I want to be me, and I want to educate and entertain. And I mean, the future could be bright in Colorado if they if they make the right choices. I mean, you've got a guy like Brendan Rogers who who absolutely raked in in high school and in the minors and stuff like that. Uh, Ryan McMahon has got a real power bat. Um, any anybody else really impress you this year that might not have been in the cards for the uh, for the Rockies that do well? Uh, I mean, Ezekiel Tovar, you got to talk about him. He could be yeah. a great player at a, at a premier position. Nolan Jones played half the games, maybe two-thirds of the games, and was a 2020 guy. He's he's a top-tier talent. I see him making a couple all-star teams. You had Brenton Doyle uh, at center field, insane defender, insane. This guy's going to light up highlight reels. He didn't hit hardly at all this year, but he's got it in him. He's got, he's got some juice. He hit in the minors. He could hit especially at Coors Field, 20, 30 homers. Um, you see these guys start to put it together. Um, they, could be, they could be good. They've got, they've got the right pieces, I think, or some of the right pieces. Is there any, you know, what, what would you, before we get into obviously what we mentioned before about uh, your former, your, your fellow Yale battery, uh, first ever to do it with Craig Breslow, what do you think the Red Sox, you know, plan is for this offseason? Ooh, 100% not cut up on the Red Sox right now. So can't Fair speak, can't speak from an educated place on that. But I know uh, that getting Craig in that position, I like that move for them. I like that move for him. Uh, I have so much respect for Craig as a, as a person and as a just his intelligence. So I think he'll do great. 
Yeah, uh, Breslow, obviously, I feel like he's got the reputation now, like, you know, the more harsher folks, you know, they're calling him a nerd, they're calling him a, you know, a yellow guy, but, you know, hey, that's stuff that you need, right? Um, And, you know, having met Craig Breslow a few times, obviously, really smart dude, really educated, and just a really cordial guy as well, but, you know, was he like that as a player, uh, you know, in the in the bullpen, uh, in the dugout? And, and what what is the skill, you know, maybe the top one or two that you think he brings to this position? Was he uh, – so you talk about how thoughtful he is and how cordial he is. Uh, he's a really thoughtful guy. And I think that comes with his, his intelligence but also how much he cares about people. Um, was he like that as a teammate on the field? Uh, when he was pitching in the game, he was intense. Yeah. He, he was aggressive. He attacked guys. Especially uh, from a not an Aaron Judge esque body, he was aggressive. Pitched inside, um, he knew how to use his stuff. Um, he was thoughtful. Uh, I don't know why I just thought of this, uh, but when you asked, was he always that thoughtful? He's the only guy that I've ever seen play Candy Crush and not just <laughs> not just mindlessly make the first match that you find. Like he was trying to beat every level on the first try. Because it was a puzzle that he could solve. So, yeah, he's, he's very thoughtful in most things that he does. Insane. Yeah, that's uh, – I, I think was he – he was one that was going to get a medical degree, right? Uh, he was going to go be a doctor. I'm pretty yeah. sure I'm not just making that up. No, that's um, – yeah, he, <laughs> he was uh, – he was – I think the, the Red Sox were going to have him repeat double A. And he said something like, I'm going to go to med school. I'm not repeating double A. They're like, okay, how about triple A? <laughs> And then he was in the big leagues by the end of the year. It worked out for him. He had a pretty fruitful career. He was sort of, uh, you know, moved around a little bit, was in Minnesota, was a couple other places. So, uh, you know, I, I'm excited for him. Ten years so, of first time. Not a lot of people yeah. do that milestone. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, and, and then for you, you know, you've had some stints in business between baseball, you know, was, was uh, you know, you dabbled in the loan origination, cross-country mortgage, and a few other uh, – few other business endeavors for you. I mean, what, what parallels are you finding now work for the business world and, and baseball and, you know, sort of how are you using, um, you know, your, your time in baseball and your time in business to sort of to put your life together in the position you are now? I think mindset and um, leadership translate exactly from sports teamwork, from sports to, to business. And that's what I'm finding. I, I've been doing a lot of motivational speaking, keynote speaking at uh, company annual conferences or quarterly sales meetings. And, and the biggest thing that I find is that the lessons I learned in baseball that helped me be my best translate exactly to helping people in the business world become their best. Change the way you, you talk to yourself. Change the way you think about obstacles. Um, change the way you the questions that you ask yourself. Um, and leadership teams. Uh, in sports, you win or lose every game, every day in pressure cook situations. In the business world, if, if there's poor leadership, people leave their jobs, people leave the company, but you don't often see the results of it for months or maybe years. So you, you almost have to be more proactive about good leadership and good teamwork in the corporate environment because you don't see the results as quickly and people leaving their jobs and needing to be replaced is so expensive for these companies. I think it's two and a half times someone's annual salary to replace them. Right on. And of course, we have to pitch Finding Way, Finding the Way, uh, your podcast on leadership and mindset. So what was when what was the aha moment for you to start this? And, you know, tell us a little bit about the show and some of the people you've had on. Yeah. So Finding the Way with Ryan LaVarnway, it's a play on my name, obviously. Um, but I don't know. I, I wasn't into starting a podcast. People, people kept telling me like, Oh, you need to start a podcast. Everybody has a podcast. And I was like, great. Everyone has one. I, I don't, people don't care what I have to say. Um, and as I, as I kept being told to, to think about it, I was like, well, wh- what am I interested in? And ultimately I was interested in talking to other ultra high peak performers and trying to pick their brain and, and peek behind the curtain. What made you tick? And what were the lessons you learned that made a huge difference for you? And I want to, I want to try to steal it. I want to try to use your lessons for my life. And if I want that, maybe other people will want to listen to that too. 
Love it. Um, where, first of all, where can people find and listen to Finding the Way? And uh, if you can tease anything you've got in the pipeline, feel free to. Yeah, Finding the Way, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, all your major platforms. Um, I've got s- season one and two are out. I've got six in the pipe uh, for season three. We're getting ready to launch season three. Uh, there's there's some really good episodes already on there. Jimmer Fredette was the, the first one we posted. Uh, we've got Olympian Super Bowl champions, mindset coaches from the NBA, uh, leaders in, in business. Uh, I try to find people that that know what they're talking about and that I want to learn from. So if I, my hope again is that uh, if I am interested, then hopefully other people will be too. And you also have a book as well. So let's hear more about that and uh, the tour you're going on and all the stuff that you're working on with that. Yeah, I wrote a, I wrote a children's book about how um, playing for Team Israel really helped me find my place in the community. It's called Baseball and Belonging. Um, and the idea is that if you do what you love, you'll find where you belong. It, it really transcends the message really transcends, um, just the, the Jewish lens, which it's told through. Um, but I'm excited. I'm, I'm doing a little tour. I'm speaking in Denver, Albuquerque, New Jersey, Chicago, um, LA, I have an event. Um, so I'm really excited to share with people. Everyone that's read it so far has loved it. Um, and it would make a great, uh, Hanukkah gift <laughs> if uh, you have any kids in your family. And where can people find more information about that? It's on Amazon. Uh, Amazon, just search Baseball and Belonging. And, uh, yeah, no, I'm really excited for people to, to see it. Love it. Awesome. That's uh, – I, I can't wait to tune in. I'm very curious about that Jimmer Fredette episode now. I'll, uh, I'll be listening to that after we close out today. But, uh, Ryan, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate your time going inside your career and, and sort of learning about what's next for you. Wishing you all the best and hope to uh, catch you on a couple of Rockies broadcasts this year. Amen. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Remember to hit the follow button on Spotify and leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram and check out house-enterprise.com for all of our content. There's also no better way to end this podcast than a note from our partners over at Manscaped. What guy or girl wouldn't want the right tools for the job? Head over to manscaped.com house or use the code house at checkout for 20% off and free shipping on your orders. See you next time and remember, the house always wins.